He considered these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Welcome and uh, Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, before I begin, I want to uh, just make a quick announcement. I was just alerted this morning. Um, Elliot and Anna, I understand. Uh, I heard you guys got married yesterday. Is that congratulations? That's great. That's great. Yeah, welcome uh, to our. Uh, Christmas service. I know it feels a little early um, because Christmas is on a Saturday this year, so it does seem a little early, but this is our uh, Christmas service, and so it's good to see uh, everyone here. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day uh, as we get to celebrate the birth of your son, Jesus, our Lord, um, and all that means for us. And so we ask now that in the hearing of your word, we would be uh, strengthened, we would be encouraged. We would hear your word for us, and in that hearing, help us to obey. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, as you know, the Bible has four Gospels or four books that tell us about the story of Jesus. But only two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, tell us about the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke's version is the more popular one. It's told as a musical. Everyone sings in Luke's birth narratives, including a heavenly choir. And Luke gives us a lot more information. He gives us the backstory of John the Baptist before telling us about Joseph and Mary's faithful journey to Bethlehem and the birth in a manger because there was no space in the guest room of the house in which they were staying. Matthew's version, as you just heard, is very brief, just eight verses. And unlike Luke's Mary-centered telling of the story, Matthew tells us more about Joseph and this scandal of this inexplicable pregnancy. The incarnation And the claim that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Mary's pregnancies was of the Holy Spirit, is something that no one can explain physiologically. However, I would say that if you can believe that God is the source of all life, that God is the source of all matter, then our normal acts of creation are no less miraculous than the virgin birth. If you can accept a God who created the heavens and the earth of all that is seen and unseen, 
it's not much of a stretch to believe that God can create a human life without our usual methods of procreation or the resurrection, for that matter. Comparatively speaking, these are minor acts of an almighty God. Matthew's point in the gospel, in any case, is not a biological explanation. It is theological affirmation. In fact, it's hard to see in our English translations, but Matthew tells us that what's going on here is nothing less than a new creation, a new genesis. You'll see that the word genealogy appears throughout this first chapter, and the word birth, which uh, is hidden in the English, is the same root as the word for genealogy. It is the genealogy of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. This is the genesis of Jesus Christ. As in the genesis, these are these echoes of the original creation story when God created the heavens and the earth. And just as in that original creation, the spirit of God hovered over the waters, bringing forth life, so now the spirit of God once again according to the word of God, brings this new life into the world. God is recreating the world in Jesus Christ to bring about our salvation. The birth of Jesus is a declaration that we did not, that we cannot produce a savior to save ourselves, that God and God alone must do it. And he did so in the birth of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of the words of the prophet Isaiah, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The quote comes from Isaiah chapter 7, which was written perhaps 750 years earlier. But Matthew now sees those words fulfilled in a far deeper way in his time than it was before. God has always been with his people. It was a reminder, this name, Emmanuel, God with us, that God is always with us. But now Matthew tells us God is literally with us in Jesus Christ. Not just symbolically, not just spiritually, but in reality and physically. The Gospel of John tells us in the first chapter, and the word became flesh. The eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Likewise, Paul quotes Leviticus 26 and 2 Corinthians 6, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The eternal word of God became flesh and dwelt and walked among us. That's Christmas. And that's what we're celebrating in this season, in this season of Advent. It is God with us, God with us, not some superman, not some prophet, but God himself is with us. As the angels declare in Luke's gospel, behold, I bring you glad tidings of great news, which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord, who is Christ the God. 
Now, the nature of the birth itself is incomprehensible. But what's even more amazing, I think, is that the almighty God placed the entire history of the world, his entire plan of redemption, which he has been working out for 42 generations, into the hands of one man, Joseph. Consider Joseph's situation. He and Mary are engaged. I know that today being engaged means that two individuals have declared their feelings for one another and it involves a diamond ring. But in those days, an engagement was more of an economic transaction, a contract between families. It was a binding contract and the couple at that point was essentially married legally. That's why Joseph is called a husband and the engagement requires a divorce even though they are not yet technically married. So during this period of engagement, Joseph discovers that his fiancée Mary has become pregnant. They live in a very small town where everyone knows everyone. There are no secrets. You cannot hide this pregnancy. Joseph knows that he is not the father of this child. And if he says so, people are likely to believe him and blame Mary. It may be that Mary tried to explain to him what happened to her. But you can imagine, it would be very hard to believe someone telling you something like, the Holy Spirit came upon me and an angel spoke and I just became pregnant. And so what does Joseph do? Well, according to the law, a woman caught in adultery could be stoned to death, which is what everyone would assume had happened. At the very least, Mary would be publicly outed, shamed, humiliated, and exiled. That is the acceptable legal option. But we're told that Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, a just man, and not wanting to disgrace her, that is not wanting to follow this legal option, planned to send her away quietly. This is an incredibly kind act on Joseph's part. He does not want to disgrace her, even though he has every right to do that. In fact, if he divorces her, no one would blame him. So his decision to quietly divorce her is commendable. In fact, he would be praised for his choice of mercy over the law. However, an angel of the Lord intervenes and tells him to marry her. That is not what he had planned. Because if he does this, it will mean that his own reputation will suffer. People will talk. There will be rumors. They will assume that he is the father. I know that today it's not a big deal to have children uh, before you're married, but in those days, it would have been absolutely scandalous and unacceptable. So Joseph has three choices. One, he could dismiss this dream, this word from the angel, and follow the law and have Mary stoned or at least shamed and exiled. Two, he could be righteous 
and he could dissolve the engagement and divorce her quietly, protect his reputation, and perhaps even be praised for his kindness. Or three, he could listen to the word of the Lord and marry her as originally covenanted and invite all sorts of scandal and chaos into his life and raise a child born of the Holy Spirit, whatever that might mean, as an adoptive father. Now, I imagine if any of us were in Joseph's shoes, if any of us were Joseph's parents or his friends, we would all doubt this claim about a birth by Holy Spirit. We would tell him that you just had a weird dream. And we would tell him to quietly, and perhaps some of us would say to not so quietly, divorce Mary. That's the smart thing to do. That's the legal and even the right thing to do. And this is where the gospel intervenes. God does something really remarkable here. He calls a righteous man, one who is already identified as a righteous man, to go beyond his righteousness. To keep the engagement, to be courageous, to not be afraid of what's in store, even though the future looks chaotic. And to raise up a child that is not his own, as his own. What's nearly unfathomable here is that the promises of God to the entire human race hinges on Joseph's choice, that he will choose the most difficult path because God had promised that he would bring his deliverer from the family of Abraham and David. Joseph's family history, which we'll hear about next week, is vital because it establishes him in the line of Abraham and King David. He is a son of David. The angel in his dream calls him Joseph, son of David, even though his father's name is Jacob. He identifies him as the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is not biologically linked to this long genealogy which starts the gospel of Matthew, according to Matthew. But in the act of naming Jesus, Joseph adopts him embraces him, claims him as his own, and brings him in, into this family tree, this ancestry, so that Jesus is legally a son of Abraham, a son of David, a son of Joseph. God in Jesus Christ will save his people from their sins. That's the name that is given to him. And later on in the gospel, Jesus will be called Joseph, or or the carpenter's son, because he has been accepted into this family tree. In Jesus, God will reconcile the world to himself. The world may look to politicians, to Caesar, as they did in those days. I suppose today we look to technology or to various philosophies and isms to save humanity. But the scriptures are clear. The scriptures are insistent that it is impossible for us to save ourselves. As the name Jesus tells us, Jesus, God saves, that God and God alone is able to save us from our sins. 
I think today, if you look around the world, I don't have to work very hard to convince you that the politicians are not going to save us. Daniel Berrigan's poem, Credo, I think is a good reminder for us. He writes, I can only tell you what I believe. I believe I cannot be saved by foreign policies. I cannot be saved by sexual revolution. I cannot be saved by the gross national product. I cannot be saved by nuclear deterrence. I cannot be saved by aldermen, priests, artists, plumbers, city planners, social engineers, nor by the Vatican, nor by the World Buddhist Association, nor by Hitler, nor by Joan of Arc, nor by angels, nor archangels, nor by powers and dominions. I can be saved only by Jesus Christ. And the thing the thing is that, you know, Joseph could have said no to God and all of God's plans. He could have passed this problem along to someone else and still be considered righteous. But in saying yes to God, in choosing the harder path of grace, Joseph experienced a life beyond his wildest imaginations. He embraces Mary and her unexplainable pregnancy as an act of the Holy Spirit and he follows God rather than following the law. It was not an easier life by any means. But I think for a person of faith, knowing that you were obedient to God's word, that you chose God's word, that leads to a much fuller, more meaningful life. You know, I know that most people, most of the time, would choose what is easier or perhaps what is in the letter of the law. That's why, you know, few people can exercise consistently over the long haul or eat healthy or serve at the church or volunteer or do anything else that requires some sacrifice and consistency on our part. But God's call God's invitation for us is to participate in the harder work that God is doing. To not be afraid to do, not just to do what is right, but to go beyond what is right. To go beyond our own comforts, to be gracious, to be forgiving, to be generous beyond measure. He calls us to trust his word and to obey when it seems to be contrary to common sense. He calls us to a life beyond mere righteousness. As you all know, we are living in a time when those who self-identify as Christians in this country continues to decline rapidly. In the latest Pew study I read this week, the percentage of Americans who identify as Christians has dropped 15% over the last 14 years. 29% of Americans now categorize themselves as nuns, not N-U-N-S, nuns, um, but nuns, N-O-N-E-S, meaning they consider themselves atheists, agnostic, or having no religious affiliation. 
If nuns were a denomination in this country, they would be the largest religious group by far. Now, Christians continue to remain the majority in this country, to be sure. But it's not hard to imagine in the near future where Christians will be a minority. I know for sure uh, my children will know that. um, And quite likely, I will experience it in my own lifetime. And I think most of you have experienced now in work, at school, that it is difficult to keep faith. That people around you will challenge you, will reject your beliefs, make fun of your beliefs. It's hard to keep faith when the world around you continues to move against your set of beliefs. It's hard to believe that God is with us or that God is. Like the days of King Ahaz and the 400 years of silence before the birth of Jesus, it may seem as though God is absent. And it's easier to worship what everyone else is worshiping. But the story of Christmas is a reminder to keep faith that God has been with us and is with us and will continue to be with us. God's presence will be often in places where you least expect. No one guessed what God was doing in the life of Mary and Joseph that day. But in their obedience, God brought about the fulfillment of his promises to save his people from their sins so that we might have life, an abundant life, an eternal life. Who knows? Maybe those small decisions you are making today to be gracious, to be generous, to be forgiving might be the beginnings of some massive work, some incredible work that God wants to do not only in your life, but in the transforming work for the whole world. This is God's eternal promise to be with us. The name Emmanuel is not just a name. It's not just a nickname. It gets at the heart of who God is. In the Gospel of Matthew, this brackets the book. We begin with Emmanuel, the God who is with us. And the very last words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is, I am with you even to the end of the age. And this is precisely this is precisely what Matt Joseph is called to. To be with Mary. To be with her in this scandal. To choose and stand with her and if necessary to suffer with her. He cannot change the pregnancy. He cannot change what others will say about them. But he can choose to be with her. I think that's the call for us. You know, earlier this week, I saw a, um, a viral video of a Filipino couple uh, who got married. And at their wedding reception, they did something quite unusual. Um, so apparently um, at these weddings, um, one of the things that a couple will often do, I guess, is they'll dance. And as they're dancing, people will stuff money into their uh, shirts and into their clothing. And so that's what everyone thought that this uh, couple was going to do. But instead of that, they sat down in a chair 
and the groom and then the bride had all their hair um, shaved off. And the bride explained that her mom had been going through cancer and chemo treatment and that her mom had lost all her hair. And so to stand with her in solidarity, the groom and the bride decided to shave their hair uh, in honor of her. And they invited people to, to give money and that whatever that was given, all of that would be donated to cancer research. Uh, I thought it was a very, very moving uh, video. Um, I found it quite, quite moving. Um, it was their way of saying to her mom, we stand with you. We can't stop the cancer. And in fact, the mother died a couple months afterwards. We can't do anything about this. Not right now. But we stand. We are with you. We are with you. You know, I know that often people want a God or pray to God just to fix our problems because the problems that, you know, we try to fix them and and it's beyond our powers. We we want God to, to step in and do things for us to solve the problems in our lives and the lives of the people that we love. It's not a bad thing. It's it's a good thing to want that. We pray for the safety, for healing, for reconciliation, for miracles. But the truth is that God rarely intervenes in miraculous ways or in a consistent way No matter how much or how sincerely you pray, our children still get hurt. Our friends still suffer. And our parents and those whom we love still die. We have to remember that God is not some some rabbit foot that we keep to ward off evil. God is not just a source of better luck than for someone else. God is not a genie upon whom we make three wishes. God is God. And God's promise to us is I am with you. I am with you. And even though I cannot explain to you why God doesn't seem to intervene more often? Why God doesn't more often intervene to heal those whom we love? I can tell you with every confidence that God is with us. That in every hardship, in every suffering, in every doubt, in every confusion, God is with us. Even through the valley of the shadow of death, I am with you. God was with Abraham. God was with David, with Ahaz, with Joseph and Mary. And God is with you and with me. This has been the testimony of believers for every generation. And that is my testimony to you as well. In Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, 
God is with us now and always. Believe the good news and be at peace. Please pray with me. Lord, we celebrate this day, your birth, and the promise that you will be with us. It is hard sometimes when the world around us rejects our faith and to believe seems foolish. But God, we trust in your word, the word that created the universe in the beginning, the word that created new life in Jesus Christ, and your word that we too will have new life and eternal life. And so God, as we remember this day, that you are one who is with us, help us in such faithfulness to be with others, to go beyond the law, to go beyond righteousness, to be a people, God, who demonstrate your love with such grace that the world will see and give glory to you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.